Scott Gillespie and John Rash are here from the Star Tribune editorial board. Chad Hartman with you. It's time once again for Playing Politics. Live here on CCO. This is also available to folks, startribune.com and uh, wccradio.com. Scott, I'm going to start with you. When we look at the events as they stand right now, with pipe bombs sent in the last 24 hours to the Clintons, to the Obamas, to the New York governor, to John Brennan through CNN, to Maxine Waters, to Eric Holder, and then days before to George Soros. What is just your overall reaction to what we know as we talk right now? Very uh, saddened and appalled by what we've seen so far. Uh, not completely surprised. Yep. Uh, to some extent, uh, you know, upheaval is what defines uh, where we are politically right now. I don't think there's a major news organization in the country that hasn't either talked about or increased security yeah. uh, in the past uh, year, uh, including the Star Tribune. We, John, there was a story about an individual, I think it was the Fox affiliate in Washington, D.C., just the other day, right? And the divide in this country, because you, you and I talk a lot about this, about the middle. I still want to believe in the middle. I just worry again where the middle's at. Now, we don't know what this is. This, this, this could be someone who's driven solely by political rhetoric, or it could be A through Z. But when you see this so far today, what, what grabs you most? That there's a consistency in the targets and that that suggests that it is ideologically driven. And I share yours and Scott's and I think everyone who's listening today, their deep sadness over the fact that this is happening here in 2018 in America. It is reflective of the deep divisions that we see in this country. And as we know, you know, it only takes one person to act upon those divisions and the rhetoric that's been inflamed because of them. And I think that, you know, it's always, but particularly now, a good time to pause and to, you know, reflect on our civility and to also hope that our law enforcement apparatus can quickly get to the bottom of this because this is profoundly dangerous. It also probably says, Scott, something about our law enforcement that they were able to get to this. That's true. Thankfully, ahead of time. And we just played about 20 minutes ago the words of the president condemning this and calling this out. Scott, a huge part of what you do this time of year is involved in endorsements. We have so many races. This is one of those. If we just had the presidential election this year, we would have everything in the state of Minnesota. You guys went through the endorsement process for through the primaries, but now you're going through it now with the elections. How, how is this year different? Uh, I think the, um, the, the tenor is more uh, tense. It's more, uh, there's more heat there than mm-hmm. the, there has been in the past. Uh, I think there's more politicking on the part of both incumbents and challengers. You expect it more from the challengers. The incumbents uh, have less record sometimes to to depend on uh, on the Democratic side and the Republican side. So, and even Tina Smith, right? She's an right. incumbent, but she's not right. really an incumbent, right? Exactly. And uh, so, one of the things we've been interested in talking to them about and looking for is, uh, you know, any hint that they'll do bipartisan work uh, if they're elected, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully, we found some that will when we do roll out the major endorsements here in the next week. So what's left, John, because the governor's race is left? Indeed. We uh, came out regarding the U.S. Senate race last right. Sunday, and mm-hmm. we've been focusing you know, on some more local Hennepin County races, and 
That'll continue through tomorrow as well. On Sunday, we will have our endorsement in the gubernatorial race. And then, as everyone knows, particularly those who turn on WCCO radio or TV or, you know, observe in any way, we have extraordinarily competitive congressional races in this state. And there is no state in the nation in terms of the ratio of races that are this closely contested. And so the amount of money that's come into the state has been extraordinary. And so, you know, we will make calls in several of those key races as well. John, I'll start with you first here on the Ellison-Wardlow race. The papers had polling on this twice in, what, the last five weeks or so. The first time it was a five-point lead for Keith Ellison. The last time the polling came out, it was a seven-point lead for Doug Wardlow. Now, that was the polling was taking place before the divorce records were unsealed. Those divorce records did not show physical violence from Keith Ellison towards his ex-wife. In fact, it showed some physical violence towards Keith Ellison. But as we were talking off air, to me, the key in that poll, because I thought the poll was very interesting, 20% of Democrats undecided if they're voting for Keith Ellison. To me, that's the race. If Keith Ellison can get that 20%, he has a very good chance to win. But if those folks are uncertain whether they believe him on the, you know, abuse allegations or they're uncertain about where he's going to take this office, if he can't get a high percentage of those folks, he's going to lose. That's not only just the race, as you correctly mentioned, Chad, but it's perhaps races, plural, in terms of, you know, it's going to, of course, impact and be the decisive dynamic in the attorney general race. But also, I think, up and down the ballot, this is a defining moment for some DFLers. And I think coming into the campaign, if the three of us would have been having this conversation half a year ago, we would have said that Senator Klobuchar running not only would garner the most votes of anyone on the ballot, that she would be able to pull over most, if not all, of the key yeah. DFL nominees because of the you know, totals that she'll probably run up throughout the state. Now it's this other race that many are looking to, which might impact many legislative races, maybe the gubernatorial race, and it's been a key debate point for Karen Housley as she, seats, as she seeks to unseat Senator Smith. The AG's office, we have to acknowledge, has been owned by the DFL. For 47 years. There you go. That's the big picture that you have to take into account here. If Lori Swanson had decided to seek re-election, how far ahead would she be? Mm-hmm. We know significantly. So Some uh, might say if, they, if the Republicans would have known it was Keith Ellison, mm-hmm. that other bigger names might have stepped forward. And the Wardlow folks would say, hey. We're up by seven. You shouldn't yeah. be casting any doubt about us. That's right. I think that's true. Uh, both On both comments, Chad, the, uh, uh, he, he's not a candidate who we would have expected uh, if we thought that this was a really hotly contested race going <laughs> in. But uh, he's, been, he's benefited from the circumstances to some point, but also has a message that seems to be uh, working in uh, certain parts of the state. Scott, John's point is interesting. Let, let's say the numbers are right and Amy Klobuchar gets over 60%, right? And I mm-hmm. think we expect that to take place. Maybe Jim Newberg will pull off the upset. Who knows? I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of money on that one. That's not going to happen at this point. What percentage of people are going to be Democrats who are going to vote for Amy Klobuchar and then either not vote for Ellison yeah. or vote Wardlow? Because if you listen to Doug Wardlow's pass yeah. and you look at where Amy Klobuchar is at right now, <laughs> 
they're not close. Uh, you're talking night and day there. Right. And uh, I think that the question is a key one. I wish I could give you the number. I can't. Uh, I, I wouldn't uh, try to predict. But there will be some percentage of Democrats who are going to vote for Klobuchar and either will not vote in the AG's race or yeah. might uh, cast her vote for Wardlow. I just don't know what it is. John, let's talk about uh, the president and Eric Paulson. It is, what, late Monday night? I know I'm shocked when the president tweets, but he tweeted, and this time it was a full endorsement for Eric Paulson. The congressman is saying, I found out just like everybody else. Uh, Adam on our show hits the buzzer an awful lot. I'm not buying that one. I did think it was interesting, though, that Eric Paulson responded and said, well, I hope the president will support me on the boundary waters where he has some differences. Do you think there was no coordination whatsoever? Because it hasn't been very clear where the president has traveled. It's areas where he working with their campaigns is showing up. And if they don't want the president to show up, he doesn't. To me, it struck me as the Paulson people have decided that they got to do both, that they got to try to get some of the independents. But if they can't fire up more Republicans in the 3rd District and, and the 3rd District Republicans who back the president, then they're not going to win. Well, you're quite right that many Republican candidates really would like this kind of endorsement, even if it comes in the middle of the night because it dominates the next day's news cycle. But whether or not they knew about it or tried to coordinate it, it's a risky strategy if they did indeed do so because, of course, the 3rd District is one of those that Secretary Clinton carried but elected a Republican congressman, and there are only about two dozen districts across the nation that have a similar profile. You know, it's really interesting when you look at the state of Minnesota. We spoke a moment ago about how many competitive congressional races are. The president, uh, unwitting to the candidate, also tweeted out an endorsement of David Hughes up in the 7th District. Yeah. And that put a remarkable amount of wind in his sails. He got new campaign funding, a whole lot of attention, and, you know, really got into the political, if not cultural, conversation with, um, you know, the incumbent congressman up there, Representative Peterson, and who's been in Congress, you know, two decades plus. And so, you know, he really welcomed it. Whether or not it'll help Eric Paulson remains to be seen. I can't can't believe that the Paulson campaign didn't ask for and or know about that. that, I'm with you. Uh, I just don't think that's that's plausible. And the the president is showing that he's he'll tweet uh, even uh, messages that his cabinet, significant cabinet members aren't aware of. But I have a harder time believing that he suddenly thought of Eric Paulson uh, out of all the issues that he could be. Yeah, it was leaving. just – it was a night. Right. And all of a sudden he started thinking about Plymouth. <laughs> you know, he started thinking – I would have preferred he would have thought about me in Plymouth, but he thought Eric Paulson. <laughs> That's right. Let's uh, – Scott, let's talk about the uh, the governor's race and the polling too that is showing the race closing. To me that makes sense. Uh, this, this still is a purple state. This mm-hmm. is a state that uh, President Trump won 79 of the 87 counties. When some of the polling had showed uh, Tim Walls up by double figures, I was a bit skeptical mm-hmm. at that time. I think the strategy is interesting by Jeff Johnson, where Jeff is saying, I'm willing to face the difficult decisions, and Tim is not, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that they, I think they were rolling a figure the other day of – if all of Tim Walls's promises are kept, this is in the Channel 5 debate, it's $18.5 billion. I, that seems a bit high to me. Yeah. But we have seen during the Dayton administration a dramatic increase 
There's no denying mm-hmm. that. The Dayton folks will say, we're better for it. Mm-hmm. What What's your early read on how Johnson is playing, the, the guy? I guess we could even circle back. Think of the 84 when Walter Mondale was saying, "I'm where's the beef? I'm willing to deal with this, and it didn't work. Sometimes people don't want to hear that someone might be saying, hey, you might not like it, but I'm willing to face these difficult decisions. Right, and I, I think uh, Jeff Johnson is very aware of the the, the value of a no new taxes uh, yep. uh, platform, and uh, in a way, this is a more this is a pretty traditional DFL versus Republican Minnesota gubernatorial race. I agree, uh, with you. and uh, Tim Walls tends to have an, a long inventory of ideas and proposals, and he will talk about them at great length. Uh, you know, Jeff Johnson's probably, uh, you could criticize him for being the candidate of no, no new mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Um, he did go up to Duluth where they're having trouble with the streets and they, they want to do a local tax, a half-cent tax increase. Uh, talked to their editorial board up there, wasn't aware of that issue apparently, and then said, even though I believe in local control, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to see state government allow Duluth to do that because yep. uh, no new taxes. What do you think? That it is, as both of you mentioned, in somewhat a very traditional race in a very unconventional year, except for the dynamic that Tim Walls is from greater Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And he you know, has played that up very effectively so far. Correct. And in a state, as you well described, Chad, as, as very split and with a significant number of counties overwhelmingly uh, that, that went to President Trump in the 2016 election – the fact that he can pull some greater Minnesota voters, you know, across the DFL line, I think still gives him the edge and our poll reflected that. But I think that this race is tight, perhaps tightening. And, you know, as with all of them, it's going to be a really interesting November 6th, more likely November 7th. Yeah. We'll figure this out. We got three minutes left. Let's go to another national and international issue. I'll start with you, Scott, on Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. With the death, I think to most of us, the murder of Khashoggi, the journalist, what took place at the consulate. I think Saudi Arabia is up to about 74 different stories right now. <laughs> the uh, president yesterday in one of his many meet and greets with the media, he does meet with the media yes. like, multiple times a yes. day, right, yes. said, worst cover-up ever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but then when he was asked, you know, is this tried to the crown prince, yeah. I hope so. I hope, excuse me, I hope not. I hope it's not. Right. And then they took away some visas, which is clearly not close. How's the president going to manage this? He wants Saudi Arabia on his side. He wants it especially with greater sanctions on Iran. But I'm sorry, if you have brainwave activity, you know the top people involved in Saudi Arabia were involved in this. This would not have happened right. without the top people knowing this, orchestrating, and okaying this. Right. And, you know, he's got some problems with this one. He's got his son's involvement with uh the prince and yep. business dealings that are certainly relevant in this discussion. Uh, but this is also the kind of reaction by him to that we've seen in other cases with, uh, for example, Vladimir Putin. So you, you, do, you do wonder if this is just a, a, a way, a strategy he has of, of dancing through these things. Some people say that it's because he just doesn't have a human touch and looks at things uh, – uh, uh, as a business deal, and and he's even talked about the business deal, the arms sales, yep. and 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 what's at stake here. Um, I can't <laughs> presume to get inside his head on this one, but I think he's got trouble with it. 
And, John, we've talked about this before. If the president isn't strong enough on this, this is where Congress might be bipartisan enough to say, we're going to step in then, including Lindsey Graham, Rand Paul, Bob Corker. A lot of people normally are on his side. No question that the president may struggle with this, but Congress can clarify. And the congressional clock is already ticking. They triggered a week and a half ago the 120-day Magnitsky Act, where the president has to specifically respond to a sanctions request, and more profoundly, they can and will need to weigh in on arms sales. And of course, this case will and should have a really significant impact on that congressional decision. But beyond that, there already was a lot of talk in terms of the role that Saudi Arabia is playing in Yemen with indiscriminate bombing, creating one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in a planet already riven with challenges. And so I think that Congress is is going to coalesce around this. They are on a bipartisan basis, and President Trump is going to face some challenging times. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you.